Yeah, good morning, everybody. Feels redundant. Welcome to LifeBridge. That's like the fourth time you're going to hear that in the last two minutes. Hi, welcome. Glad you're here. I'm Bevan. I'm the connection director here and a bunch of other things now. But um, I'm here to tell you hi and welcome. We're glad you're uh, glad you made it to church through the weird snowy weather mix thing we got going on out there. That kind of stinks. Um, so, hi. Thank you uh, to all of you guys who made it out yesterday, by the way, to wrap presents and stuff. That was amazing. So all those presents two days ago, correct. Yesterday was a different thing that I'll also thank you for. Um, so uh, thanks for coming to wrap presents. You guys, that was so cool. What a, uh, we do things all the time that are pro-community, pro-people. Like, we really like people. We like you, probably. I'm kidding. We definitely like you. Um, so... Uh, we want you to be a part of what we're doing here. So we do stuff all the time to help people, help our community, help, because uh, church doesn't happen right now. This hour 15 that we're about to go through is uh, is great, but it's not the whole picture, right? There's uh, there's also Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the other days. So um, we want you to participate in that. And to find out more of what we're doing, uh, it's on mylifebridge.church. Uh, the .church is instead of .com for anybody that's over 20 years old. I had a hard time with that. Um, so mylifebridge.church. Um, is where you find all this information. It's all the things that are coming up, ways to serve, uh, how to follow along with the devotionals, which is great. Uh, Pastor John's going to reference the devotionals a zillion times today. That's a spoiler for the sermon. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's how to get signed up for things, how to, how to volunteer for things. It's all on that mylifebridge.church kind of portal. So it's very cool. Uh, if you haven't been there yet, please do that. Uh, with that, we want to say thanks for your, your giving, your tithes and offerings, your time, uh, which is great for wrapping presents, which are so cool. If you want to know more about any of those things, come talk to us. We love sharing about that stuff. Um, we helped somebody move yesterday, which is fantastic. Uh, and I say we, but I mean like we, I didn't make it there. Um, but thank you guys so much for doing that. Your, your giving is amazing. And so we, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about that today too. Another spoiler. So Christmas Eve service, uh, we didn't write the date up there because you know it, right? So Christmas Eve, uh, 5 and 6 p.m., uh, those are our two services. There's two services, and they're both family services, um, which means bring your kids, uh, to bring everybody, whatever. So it's going to be a mix of, mix of people. It's usually pretty short. You know, it's an hour, only an hour between services, so it'll be a short service. It'll be fun. It's always fun. So uh, come to that, 5 and 6, plan accordingly. And uh, with that, we're going to watch a video by Pastor John Thorngate. Um, he's at home not feeling great, but he still wanted to give the, the message about finances. So with that... Pastor John Thorngate. Hey everyone, so Pastor John here. I've got a quick update for you guys on our finances as we get into the end of the year. Every December we start a giving push and we set a goal for the month of December and we talk about if we hit that goal, that giving goal, um, what that will mean, how we'll use those funds. And so I'm going to talk about that in just a second, but before I do, here's a quick update on where we're at financially. Um, this year's been a unique year for us and uh, we've, it's actually the first time we've ever as a church entered the month of December um, behind budget on giving, and we are uh, pretty significantly. In terms of giving, we're down about $60,000 behind where we'd hoped to be at this point. Um, when your entire giving budget's about $450,000 for the year, $60,000 is, is a lot of money. Now, we're not in panic mode by any means. Uh, we don't have like a balance on the credit card or anything like that. We have saving reserves. We've been able to tighten up our expenses a little bit as well. But we certainly need to have some sense of urgency about, about knocking that deficit out here at the end of the year. Um, I'm going to try to answer a few obvious questions that people might have as we, as we get into this process. So the first one is, why is giving down? Um, and I'm not going to really sugarcoat it. It's a pretty simple, simple reason. Before COVID, we had a lot more people. There were a lot more people who called LifeBridge home uh, than, than do now. And this year, we're feeling the effects of that financially on the giving side of things. What's the plan? What's the plan moving forward? Well, we've adjusted our expenses. 
and we expect things to stabilize just fine next year in terms of our finances. Um, again, we're not panicking. We're doing just fine. But at the same time, I do want to communicate a sense of urgency to our church because we really do need to do everything we can to knock, uh, to catch up by the end of the year here. Uh, what's the good news is the next question I, I was thinking through a little bit. And, um, you know, the last few years have been really difficult. And I've said before, um, it was really the first real challenge we've had as a church the last few years. In the early days of the church, it was kind of all good news all the time. And we were coming through, um, and I think on the other side of a very hard season here. Um, but we've grown so much in this time. And I really do believe that we're healthier than we've ever been. Uh, our trust is deeper with one another. We take better care of each other. Our leadership is stronger, and our vision is clearer. So we've grown in different ways. Our attendance is definitely down. We haven't built any new buildings, but we've grown. And really, that's the challenge that's in front of us right now, is can we get excited about a different kind of growth? Growing healthier rather than growing bigger. Can we continue to invest in the good work that God is doing in the lives of the people who are here when there's no big, exciting project? Because here's the thing, guys. I think our numbers are going to go back up. We have visitors all the time. I believe a lot of those families are going to call LifeBridge home. They're going to find real belonging here. And so I think that the number growth will be there for us. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about that, wondering where the numbers are going to come from. We're far more concerned with the health of our church so that when we grow, um, however much God has for us to, to do that, that we do it healthier and stronger. If God wants us to be a bigger church, um, we want to do that in a way that honors him and how we do it in terms of our health. If God wants us to be a small church, we want to be a small church that still maintains a big, a big vision uh, and heart for God's kingdom, for his mission. So with all of that said, our giving goal for December of this year, of 2021, is $100,000. That's going to be a heavy lift for us. That's a lot of money in one month. Um, but we need, we need to hit this goal, and if we do, it will allow us to catch up and stay on track uh, with our goals for 2022. Not just catch up and keep the lights on, but it's really more about where we're going. And, and one of our big goals for the next year is we're, we would like to begin to explore the idea of hiring a third pastor um, that, that can help us disciple people into deeper relationships with Jesus. And this is something we're exploring. We see the need for it. We're excited about it. But of course, um, if, if the budget doesn't, doesn't add up, it's not going to allow it. So that's, that's one big thing we're looking at. Also, at the end of 2020, we committed to giving $120,000 to an organization called the Halu House. Many of you have met Darren and Lindsay. Lindsay's from this area originally, and we made a big jump at the end of 2020 to commit to help them purchase and sustain the growth of their organization by, by moving, into a, moving into a farm that they now own. And um, we committed to $120,000 over three years, and we've been making, making those payments to them every month uh, faithfully. Some of you might be wondering, if, if, church, if church attendance was shrinking, uh, why did we commit to give a bunch of money away? And, uh, and the answer is pretty simple. I think in, in times when, when things get more difficult, when challenges arise, I think our, our first instinct to, is to look inwardly and to think about protecting ourselves. But to, to maintain our, our missional mindset and the culture of caring about the good that God is doing throughout the world and, and in our community here locally and not just what's happening inside of our walls, in order to fight for that culture and to maintain that culture, we felt like we had to commit and make that push, even in a time where we knew it was going to be a heavy lift. And we honestly, we knew that when we got to this point of this year, 
this would be a part of the conversation is, hey, we're giving away a lot of money, even though we don't have the money coming in that we used to have. And so, but ultimately what it, com what it comes down to is no matter how small our church gets, we want to continue to have a big vision for God's kingdom across the world. It's, it's not, we are not just a place that, that builds what we have for ourselves and for our families. We care about God's kingdom everywhere. And one of those places that we're investing and we can make a real impact is on this little organization called the Hulu House. We love them, we trust them, and we want to continue to make that investment. You know, one lesson I've definitely learned in ministry is that financial stress is, is something that brings out people's true character. People show their true colors in times where they're feeling financial burden. And in that moment of financial stress for us as a church, we want our character to be still generous, still outward focused, still caring about what God's kingdom is doing um, all over the place and not just within our walls. So we are going to continue our commitment to the Hulu House and we're going to continue doing our best to fund other good work happening both locally and globally, um, no matter how small our church budget gets, no matter how small our church gets. Um, but like I said before, I do think we're going to be just fine moving forward. I think we're going to grow again. And we just, we need to hit this goal at the end of this year to, uh, to kind of get the momentum pointed back in the right direction. So with that said, that's kind of it. That's the goal, $100,000, and we need everyone's help. I'm asking you to come alongside us to meet this goal. And sincerely, I know this sounds weird, but I'm excited for the challenge, um, and I hope that you are too. Thanks for listening. All right. Hey, guys. So, yeah, um, that's Pastor John throwing it, if you don't know him. And he has had a few cases of COVID in his house over the last few weeks. So um, we decided it was best for him to make a video instead of having somebody else give the announcement as well, because uh, like he said in the video, this is the first, this is the first year of our church's seven-year existence that, that it hasn't been on the upward trajectory. Um, so it seemed best to come from John. And I agree with him wholeheartedly that this is uh, a year and a moment for us as a church to where it doesn't, it, uh, the trajectory isn't just launching, like everything looking positive and looking up, but it's a time for us to really refocus and to invest in some of those underlying things that aren't as like showy and flashy, like doing this new building or doing the building over there uh, or doing stuff that makes our church experience easier and better. Okay, that's, that's the stuff that is really easy for church people generally to give to, but discipleship. If we can refocus and give to discipleship, to uh, missions, to the Hulu House, uh, all of that stuff that isn't as flashy and showy and isn't as easy for us to give to, but is a priority for the church. So this is a year and an opportunity for us to really recenter and to reemphasize and to continue to be generous, even in a time when it is difficult for us as a church. So uh, I encourage you to come alongside and to uh, be a part of what's happening here and how much and the generosity that we as a church are committing to, but to be generous in your personal lives as well. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into the sermon. Lord, God, we love you. We praise your name. Pray, Lord, that as we enter this Christmas season and towards the end of the year, God, that you would be honored and glorified uh, by our hearts and the disposition of our hearts to being generous, to being people who are committed to your kingdom, to the good work of what you are doing in the lives of people here, uh, to the work that you are doing at the Hulu House, through Darren and Lindsay. Um, Lord, we want to be people who are committed to your kingdom and not just our own luxury and our own self-comfort. 
So, Father, guide us in this process. Spirit, move in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned that John and his family have had a few cases of COVID. They're all doing well. They're all, <laughs> they're all fine, but keep them in prayer. All right, today we're beginning our Advent series, our, our, our series uh, looking ahead to Christmas. We're entering into the Christmas season now. It's December as the weather is communicating to us with little pieces of ice pelting us on the way into church. So thanks for braving the elements. <laughs> and uh, watch your step on the way out. I'm just going to say, watch your step. Be careful. Clay's out there doing his best. Man, he's, he's crushing it, throwing salt down. But it's still going to be icy. So watch your step. Thanks for being here. Um, yes, yeah, December. Christmas season is upon us. It's a really dramatic way of saying it. Christmas season's here. So uh, we're going to start talking about Christmas and about the birth of Jesus and to focus our attention for the next few weeks on Christ uh, and, and his first advent, or his first appearing when he was born as a baby. So what we're going to do is look through the first uh, chapter of Luke's gospel and into chapter two a little bit as well over the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at how Luke presents the story of Jesus' birth. Now, Luke, he traveled around, uh, he wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. So what he did is he traveled around to just uh, put the story together, and he interviewed a lot of uh, the early church, first century uh, disciples. And he likely interviewed Mary. So this is likely how he got this information about Mary, because a lot of it is very personal that Mary had shared with Luke. And he interviewed Paul. He traveled with Paul a lot to write the book of Acts. So, so Luke has this firsthand knowledge from Mary, and that's how he's sharing it. And it's written to a guy named Theophilus, okay, who is a uh, Greek, obviously, with a name like Theophilus. You don't have to wonder very much what <laughs> nation he came from. And he's writing to him, so it's, he'll explain some of the like, Jewish connotations a little bit more. And it's a little bit easier for us as Westerners to kind of understand than Matthew, for example, which was written to a primarily Jewish audience. So, what we, the first chapter of Luke, the first thing that we should be seeing is that Luke has these parallel narratives going on here. He's got this, even, even in our text for today, we're going to start in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Right, so Luke is kind of documenting these two stories. He's documenting the, the birth narrative of Jesus through Mary and Joseph, as well as the birth narrative of John the Baptist through Elizabeth and Zechariah. Okay, so as we read through these, and I'm going to encourage you to read through the whole chapter one tomorrow in the devotional, as you read through these, you should be seeing a lot of similarities and differences between the two narratives. So one, uh, the, the Zechariah narrative, when the angel appears to him and to announce the birth of John the Baptist, it occurs in the temple in Jerusalem, while Zechariah, who's a priest, is uh, serving. He's on duty in the temple. So this one, it occurs in Nazareth, which is kind of like the Jewish people viewed as like the armpit of their community, right? It's a place nobody wanted to live. It was really far away from Jerusalem. Uh, it was through Samaria to get there. They didn't like the Samaritans. So this is a place that like nobody went. In fact, one of the characters says, can anything good come out of Nazareth when they hear where Jesus came from? Okay, this is, this is a place nobody wants to be. So we, we have this juxtaposition of the epicenter of religious life in Jerusalem at the temple. The angel appears to Zechariah, who's a priest. He's theologically trained. 
He's serving in the temple when the angel appears to him to announce John the Baptist's birth. And then we have also out in Nazareth, out in the middle of nowhere, an angel, the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, who's a poor young woman and living again out in the middle of nowhere. So even what we see in these two narratives is what God is doing now through John the Baptist and Jesus and this moment in history is for everyone, for all people as he's going to announce to the shepherds, and we'll see that in a few weeks. But this is for the religious elites in Jerusalem. This is for uh, the people who have zero theological training and background and all the way out in little old Nazareth. So, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. We're going to see this time and time again. The biblical authors and the Gospels make exceedingly clear that Joseph was a descendant of David because the Messiah was prophesied about throughout the Old Testament to come through the line of David. The Messiah just means chosen one. Uh, it's the one to establish God's kingdom here on earth forever. They had a lot of misconceptions, uh, did the Jewish people, about what the Messiah would be and how he would do that. But... They had this, this prophecy that has existed from Genesis 3 all the way until uh, Jesus comes in this announcement here. So they've been waiting for the Messiah and is to come through the line of David because David uh, in 2 Samuel 7 is promised that a king would come in his line and his kingdom would never end. So that's super important. Matthew goes through a long genealogy at the beginning of his birth narrative of Jesus that when you read it, you're like, this is boring. Why are we reading this? That's the point, okay? Jesus is through David's line. The virgin's name was Mary. Okay, so we're gonna talk a good bit about Mary today. And if you come, especially from a Catholic tradition, um, there's a lot of theological controversy surrounding Mary, and it's really unfortunate, but there is. So in Wednesday's devotional, I kind of go through a lot of those and take time to clear it up. So especially if you've come from a Catholic tradition, be sure to... Uh, listen to that devotional or read it and follow through with the theology around Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. So the angel appears to Mary and what he says is, you are highly favored. Okay? What that means is you are a recipient of God's grace. Uh, the word for highly favored is a derivative of the word for grace, translated elsewhere in the New Testament. He's saying, God chose you, Mary. <laughs> You're favored by God. And in the text, there's nothing that indicates Mary, uh, she was a, a righteous young woman, but there's nothing here that indicates that that's why God chose her. God didn't choose her to be the mother of Jesus because she was so great and so perfect. No, no he just chose her to be, he just chose to show her grace and bestow his favor upon her. He says, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Again, same, same word, grace. You have found favor with God. God is being gracious to you, Mary. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Okay. So as we learn in the parallel narrative with Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John the Baptist. Um, when a son is born, the, the firstborn son is, 
to have the name either of their father or like some their grandfather, one of their one of their grandparents up up through their <laughs> through their line, genealogy. So when God changes somebody's name, it's very important. All right, it's not like today where when you're having a child, you go on Pinterest or Instagram or whatever name boards are out there. I don't know. And you're like, what's a What's a unique, cool name that nobody's ever named their kid before? And name them that. No, that's not why you picked your kid's names. I'm kidding. But that wasn't how they did it. Okay, they, they named them either after their parent or after somebody else in their ancestry. And that was the only names you got to pick from. <laughs> so when Elizabeth and Zechariah named their son John, everyone's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, nobody in your family has that name. You can't do that. It's very culturally unacceptable to do that. So when the angel declares that the child's name is to be Jesus, that's very significant. It's very important. Like in the Old Testament when Jacob's name is changed to Israel, right? When God changes people's names, it's very important. And it carries a connotation of who they are going to be and what this person is going to do. So when he names him Jesus, it, the Hebrew word Jesus, Yeshua, it means God is my salvation, God is my deliverer. That has obvious connotations for what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to bring a salvation, a deliverance to the people of Israel, to the whole world, carrying out God's plan for the Messiah in a way that couldn't be imagined at this point. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Okay, there it is again. You have to understand the Old Testament context to get that, that he will be the Messiah. He's going to have the throne of David. Now, in a completely different way than what they were expecting. Again, they were expecting the Messiah to be a ruler, a king, to establish the kingdom like David, uh, like Solomon, like Saul in the Old Testament, a, a physical kingdom. But what Jesus brings is something much bigger, much grander than they could have ever imagined. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So his kingdom will be eternal. His kingdom will continue to expand and grow until he returns and establishes it in full. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. Okay, so one of the challenges to the virgin birth that we'll cover in the devotional on Wednesday is uh, the term virgin can just mean young woman too. And yes, it can. That is absolutely True, but the term used here is not uh, the Greek term for virgin. It is, since I do not know a man. Okay? So it's quite clear that the New Testament authors are, uh, Luke here, Matthew does as well, indicating that this was indeed a miraculous virgin birth. There's not as much linguistic wiggle room with I do not know a man as there is the other term. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This will be a miraculous conception. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And that's, again, Luke is telling us this is why it's important that the angel announces that, that for Jesus to be called the Son of God had to be a miraculous birth. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. So Elizabeth uh, was beyond childbearing years. She had had no children. And God was doing another miracle in her to bring about the birth of John 
the Baptist. And the point is, that last line, it's a good line to highlight in your Bible if you're a highlighting person, no word of God will ever fail. If God said it, that's important. <laughs> if God said it, he will do it. If God said it, he will do it. And this brings, should, especially this season, I don't know about you, but I always think, when we think about the first advent of Jesus, I always think to the second advent of Jesus, to his promised second coming. Okay, so this had been <laughs> over a thousand years in the making, this prophecy about the Messiah coming. And the people of Israel, I'm sure, had grown very weary <laughs> of, is he ever coming? Is God going to fulfill his promise? Is he actually going to do this when this announcement takes place? In the same way, when we look ahead to the second coming of Jesus, we're sitting here thinking, man, Jesus promised to return. He promised to establish his kingdom. The world doesn't look great right now. Ugh, the temptation is anxiety, worry, and fear, and to be kind of drawn, to draw back and think God's never going to follow through on this promise and to lose hope. But when we think of the first advent of Jesus, we can look forward to the second advent of Christ, that he's promised to come with hope, knowing that God has promised he will come and no word from God will ever fail, so he will come. We can take hope and trust in his word. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. This is a beautiful response. And we're going to see Mary is this model of discipleship for us in Luke's gospel. That after hearing the words of the angel, this is her response. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. A miraculous pregnancy is <laughs> just pregnancy in general is not easy, right? <laughs> and you're like, that's coming from you? Hmm. I get it. Okay. I know. It's not easy. <laughs> this is Mary's response, though. I am the Lord's servant. And she willingly accepts her calling from God, even though it comes with great challenges. And the challenges that Mary will face are not just, it's not just pregnancy and uh, the, the pain and difficulty of pregnancy. It's the social component as well. Because in this culture, remember, she's just betrothed to be married. She's not married yet. So she would be labeled an adulteress in the culture. And uh, Joseph, in Matthew's gospel, is, uh, Matthew brings out that Joseph is considering divorcing her quietly right before an angel appears to him. So that leads to, this would lead to some ostracization in the society and in their culture from her friends and her family. Okay, we've all experienced tensions within our family and our friend relationships over this last year, this would be elevated even higher than it is in our culture today. Because people are going to start asking questions, right? <laughs> Once you start showing, people are going to ask questions. And in these cases, even though she knows that she has not been unfaithful, cultural perception would produce a lot of cultural tension and anxiety for her. But she willingly accepts it. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. Band, you guys can come and get set up. So from this text, we have two points. I, I hate doing two, but I, I don't know, whatever. I couldn't boil it down to one, all right? So these two are both important. They're major themes that Luke has running here in this section. And it's kind of impossible to untangle the two. I thought about preaching two different sermons on it, and I don't know if I can. So... Two kind of points here running. Jesus is the Messiah. We can trust in that. So when the angel confirms this to her and says, 
the things like he'll be the son of the most high, name him Jesus, he'll have the throne of David, his kingdom will never end. We can trust in the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, conservative estimates of the number of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled from the Old Testament is over 200, over 200. Okay. So Jesus is the Messiah. He's the conclusion of the Old Testament story. It's all pointing ahead to him. And we can trust in that. Because again, it's not just Jesus saying that about himself. This is the angel confirming it. This is God speaking it on the Mount of Transfiguration at his baptism. We have a lot of miraculous events taking place here where God is confirming that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And the one thing to note here about this whole passage is that this is God doing all of it. The angel is announcing this to Zechariah and to Mary. God initiates it all. He starts it all. It's all him. Okay, this isn't just something that people are either trying to make up what God is doing. No, this is God doing it. So Jesus is the Messiah. We can trust in that. We'll unpack that later. And then because Jesus is the Messiah and the long-awaited hope of Israel, uh, when God calls us, our response should be like Mary's. Mary's response here is just a beautiful picture of what discipleship to Christ should look like. Her response of, I am the Lord's servant, may your word to me be fulfilled. Again, if the disposition of our heart is as Mary's, that will be our response to whatever God calls us to, which we'll see when I come back up and apply this. Now let's pray, and then we'll sing together. Lord, God, we thank you for your word, that, Lord, your word does not return void. So, Lord, I pray that as we're pondering, as we're thinking on your word, as we're worshiping you, that, God, you would accomplish what your spirit is, is desiring to do in our hearts. That, Lord, we would grow more obedient to your word, to your truth. Lord, that we could follow the example of Mary, that you'd give us a sense of deep trust in Jesus as our true Messiah. That we can know that to be true. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. There's prayer available in the back. If while we're singing you need prayer, please head back there and pray. In the same time.
If my heart is overwhelmed And I cannot hear your voice I'll hold on to what is true Though I cannot see If the storms of life they come And the road ahead gets seen I will lift these hands in faith I will believe I'll remind myself of all that you've done In the life I have because of your son Love came down and rescued me Love came down and set me free I am yours I am forever yours Mountain high or valley low I sing out and remind my soul
is our heart's cry. Lord, we are, we are yours. We are in Christ. So Lord, just like Mary declares in her song, Lord, we want our soul to glorify you. Lord, you are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of all of our life. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments. All right, so as we apply this text, remember the two main points from the text is that Jesus is the Messiah. We can trust in that, that this is a message that was communicated to Mary by the angel Gabriel wasn't just, again, something that people were trying to, like, discern the will of God and see if this was something that God was doing. No, this is something that God directly comes and says in, through the messenger Gabriel. This is what God is doing, is vindicated by miracles, both Elizabeth's birth and Mary's. So, Jesus... He's the Messiah. <laughs> we can trust that. When the scripture says that he is the son of the most high, he'll have the throne of David, his kingdom will never end. These are all Old Testament themes that we have to grasp. But, but in that day and age, when, when Mary first heard that, she was realizing that this is the realization of, of the, this hope that the people of Israel had had from the beginning. From Genesis 3, as I said, on till the first century. They had... People had longed for this, for the Messiah to finally come. And so this explains her response of such joy in God as her salvation. Because she's been waiting for this. And not only she, but like generations have been waiting for this. We have very little concept of what it means as a people for generations, for over a thousand years, to be waiting for something, for a hope to finally be realized. And this was finally happening through this message that the angel gave to Mary. I was thinking about that this week. Like, what, what hope have I longed for and then finally realized? And trying to process through, like, the feelings of that and what I was thinking in the, in the process. And when I was a kid, it was, like, Christmas, right? Christmas is always, like, you're hoping for whatever you want, right, for <laughs> Christmas presents. And... For me, it, the biggest, best gift that I got was my Nintendo 64. Right, guys? Yeah. My brother and I played that. Oh, man. It was so fun. He can testify that, that was true. It was awesome. And that's stupid, right? It's like, <laughs> it's a video game system, right? We're talking about Jesus, and this is like a video game system. For thousands of years, mine was like a, a few months, maybe, I was waiting for this thing. And this game was obsolete very quickly, right? Like, this thing had cartridges. And graphics were terrible. And kids, I should explain to you what cartridges are. Um, that was one of the biggest, like, hopes that I had realized. And I was thinking of the anticipation and the longing and the desire to finally achieve that. And, and when, I, when, I see my, <laughs> when I see kids opening presents on Christmas morning, that's what my mind goes to, is hope realized. Like, finally uh, attaining or getting what you had hoped for and longed for for so long. I think of things like my wedding day. 
from the time that I proposed to Savannah to the day we got married. There's this longing, this expectation, this hope that finally is realized on my wedding day. The birth of my kids, at least, there's nine months at least of my hoping and waiting for that realization to actually be reality. All of those things are so great, but nothing compares to this, of generations longing, hoping for the coming of the Messiah. And those things are, you know, I mean, the N64 thing is just straight selfish, right? And like, it's so minor and so small. But compared to this, like, there's nothing that compares to that. There's nothing that we can really compare to except the second coming of Jesus. That when we have good theology and we actually realize that Jesus promised to return and what will, what will happen upon his return, the restoration of all creation, the fullness of God's kingdom coming, God's presence dwelling with us. When you get a small little picture of what that actually means and what that will be like, okay, that is our hope that we are longing for, that we are awaiting the return of Jesus. And just like the first advent of Christ, when he came and how it was this hope realized that brought about so much joy. That should be our expectation and our hope and our longing for Christ to return. That when he comes, he will restore all things. He will make all things new. And so this kingdom that Jesus is bringing when he returns will be far greater than anything we could have ever imagined just as the first advent when Jesus came and the first revelation of the Messiah to Mary here, was Jesus was so much bigger than they had ever dreamed of and had ever possibly imagined. This spiritual salvation that he brought, this guarantee of if your faith and your trust and hope is in Christ for your salvation, that he becomes your righteousness and therefore you are made right with God so that you can be in the holy God's presence that is far greater, far grander than they ever imagined. They were thinking some physical kingdom. Jesus brought something bigger than they could even imagine. And so the first question is just simple. Is your hope and trust in Jesus for the salvation of your soul? For your sins to be forgiven through him, for you to be made righteous in him. There's no other way that we are made righteous before God other than through Jesus Christ, through the Messiah. And then second, we get, well, let's just go into Mary's. If Jesus is the Messiah then, and that is true, uh, when God calls us to a task or a mission, then our response should be like Mary's. Again, Mary is a model of discipleship in this text. It's a model of what it looks like to be called by God, to be chosen by grace, by God. And then in her... <laughs> in her conversation with the angel. Uh, I wrestled with this in the devotional a little bit, but she, she asks the angel, how is this going to be since I am a virgin? Zechariah, he asks, how would this be since we are old? <laughs> is basically what he says. Uh, Zechariah is punished. He's made mute until the birth of his son. Mary isn't by her question. And I've been wrestling with why is that? Why, why was Mary not? And there's a few reasons for it. But I think one, one of the main reasons is probably just how Mary asked the question. It says that Zechariah didn't believe. So the way that he asked the question must have indicated his unbelief. It must have been like a, a sarcastic or a more, uh, 
It was made obvious, or the angel just knew because he knows things, right? <laughs> One of those is the option. But Zechariah didn't believe. And that got me thinking, like, how, when we are called by God, when we're sent God calling us to do something, God doesn't steer away from questions. Because Mary asked, how is this going to be since I'm a virgin, right? He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily punish for questions or, like, be offended by questions. It's how we ask the question. That is so important. Do we have this deep-seated trust in him still to be just curious and seek an answer to the question, but still trust and believe and know that what God says he will do, he will do and that he can do it. But still, we can ask the question. And we can have this, as we talked about in our Reconstruct campaign, we can ask questions and be curious of what God is doing, but still believe and still trust that he'll do what he says he will do. But anyways, the heart of the matter is, how did Mary have this response? Well, it's what she says in her song. This is called the Magnificat. This is Mary's song. It's um, in her conversation with Elizabeth in the next few verses, she, she sings this song. She pauses and breaks out into song like a good drama uh, play or whatever, <laughs> an opera. What if we lived life like that? What if we just paused and like broke out into song? That'd be so cool. Probably not. It's like start dancing in the street. And <laughs> it's a musical. Okay. So <laughs> Mary sings this song. And the first, this, this is the heart of how and why Mary responded the way that she did. To this interruption to her life. Okay, Mary had her plans. She had her dreams. She was getting married. Right? She had plans. She had dreams. She had hopes for her life and for her marriage. And this is a huge interruption to all of those things that she's going <laughs> to miraculously uh, conceive and give birth to the Messiah, the most important figure in all of history. Right? But because of this disposition that she portrays here in verse 46, she responded the way that she did. That I am the Lord's servant, let it be done to me according to your word. It's a great response, but how does she have that response? This is, this is it. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord. That word glorifies, it's translated elsewhere in the ESV and other versions as magnify. Same concept, right? It's make look big is the <laughs> in uh, barbarian language, uh, caveman language. Make it look big is <laughs> kind of it. So she's saying my soul is my purpose all of my inner life, all of my life, everything about me is intended to make God look great. That is one of those deep-seated purpose statements of who we are that if we have that proper perspective, when God calls and we have this big life change on the horizon that may be seriously inconvenient for us, it may inconvenience our finances, our future plans in life, all of these things, we can still rejoice and take joy in that. Because if indeed our whole being's cry is to glorify God and to make him look great, put a magnifying glass on him, the idea is when people look at you, they see a big picture of God. God looks awesome through you, through your life, your actions, your behavior, uh, your inner life, your peace, your joy, your love, all of that. When people look at you, this is your... Are they seeing a big, glorious picture of the Lord? That is Mary's heart's cry. And that's what allowed her to respond the way that she did. 
And she says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Where do we take joy? Are we like Mary in our, in our inner life? The parts of us that nobody sees. Do we find joy in God, our Savior? Where else do we look for joy? Do we look for joy in ourselves, in our work? Because if we're trying to magnify ourselves or our company or the thing that we started, the thing that we're building, our own personal life, then we won't take joy in God our Savior. We'll take joy in that stuff. We'll take joy in our reputation, which is fickle and can be gone. And then when that goes, where's your joy? Your joy is gone. But if your joy is indeed in God, your Savior, your joy can never be taken from you. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So we rejoice in what God has done. When we look back at history and we read in Scripture, we can take joy in what he has done. Most significantly in the cross and in Jesus' salvation and his resurrection, we find great joy in our peace with God. We find joy in our spiritual salvation because of that. And then we can take joy in working with Christ for the restoration of all creation. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I'm going to read it. I'm going to read the rest of what Mary says here in her uh, song, which sounds way better in Hebrew, I'm sure, right? That's what she would have spoken it in. Probably doesn't sound like a great song in English. Although, <laughs> I grew up listening to a play every year in which uh, they acted out and Mary sang this song. So that just rings in the back of my head, but it sounds better in Hebrew, I'm sure. Anyways, okay, so Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. I want you to just hear the good theology that Mary has here. She's recognizing this is all God's work and what God is doing here. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Okay, so notice, she's, she's teasing out what it means that God is her salvation. Okay, so it applies to her first and what God has done for her and how all generations will call her blessed and how he has been mindful of the humble state of her servant. But now she's diving into more of this, the tangible results of God being her salvation. The word salvation or savior isn't just a, a spiritual get out of hell free card. It's a entire creation restoration vision okay, that Jesus is accomplishing through his people, through his kingdom, and that he will accomplish fully upon his return. Notice how she's bringing this out. He's brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. All these things Jesus has done in his ministry. But has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So finally, when we have this disposition, we can take joy in working with Christ in the restoration of all creation. That it's not just, okay, I've got my get out of hell free card now that I'm saved. Now it's, hey, I get to work with Jesus. This is awesome. And so we can take joy in participating with God 
in making this world new because he is our salvation and our deliverance and it all reflects on his glory. That's a high calling for us and a high purpose that we can live for. And that changes the way that you live. All of this, it changes the way that you live your life if you have this perception or this um, disposition on life. Changes the way you live ethically when people aren't looking because you're, you're, you're reflecting on Jesus. So people don't just look at you. They're, remember, when they look at you, our goal is to make God look big and God look great and glorious when they see us. And if we're living in an ethical life, that doesn't make Jesus look great, does it? And that changes the way you spend your time. All the selfish stuff that you do, that we all do, right? It's not that we can't like, take time for ourselves and all of that stuff, but it just becomes less important in the big picture of things. Because our goal is to make God look glor glorious, make him look awesome. And we're finding our joy in participating with Christ in the salvation and deliverance of all creation. It is a big task, but it is a joy to work with Christ in all of that. So just take a moment. I invite you to pray and reflect right now. On these words, is this truly your heart's cry? Can you honestly say, my soul magnifies, glorifies the Lord? I want all of my life to make God look awesome. Can you honestly say that? And can you say that your spirit rejoices in God, your Savior, that you find your deepest sense of joy in God who is your Savior and Deliverer that can never be taken from you? Take a moment, just close your eyes, reflect for a moment. Are those things true for you? Pray this prayer, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. we confess of all the times that we don't make you look glorious. Our soul is not magnifying you, but ourselves. Lord, to confess of the times where we don't take our joy, it's not rooted in you and in your salvation and the deliverance of all creation. But Lord, we put our joy in other things that are fickle and are our own doing. Lord, we want to live for you. It's our heart's cry to make you look glorious, to make you look awesome and beyond compare as you truly are. So Lord, move in our hearts, change us so that we can make you look awesome. And Lord, produce in us a deep sense of joy in what you have done, a deep sense of hope and peace in what you are to do, and that Jesus, you will return one day. And so Lord, we have hope and we can trust 
in you. So Lord, make us into people who make you look awesome and can have that deep sense of joy and peace in God, our Savior. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together. Again, there's prayer available in the back if you need prayer. Seal it for thy courts above.
for your word. We thank you for your spirit. Lord, who produces your work in us. Lord, is it our heart's cry that you would make us into the type of people who make Jesus look glorious, who make you look awesome, God. So, Lord, in this Christmas season when so many around us are hurried with busyness, there's stress, there's anxiety, Lord, give us a sense of joy and peace that comes from you. So that, Lord, when the world looks upon us, they see Jesus looking glorious for the transformation that he has brought in us. And, Lord, may we, as a small community, as individuals, be a picture of the transformation that you are bringing to all of creation. Lord, we take joy in participating with you in that, in doing good, in bringing your kingdom, in bringing your message of hope and light into a dark world. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you guys need prayer, uh, there's prayer still available in the back. Take your time. If not, thanks for being here. Have a great week.